We are joined again by Karen York, the Executive Director of the Job Opportunities Task Force. Karen is one of the most recognized advocates for social justice in Annapolis. She's been with the Job Opportunities Task Force for the better part of the past decade, climbing from policy associate to director of policy and strategic partnerships, and since August, executive director. She's been at the forefront of battles over criminal justice reform and workers' rights. Karen, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, thank you. Uh, so I read in the Baltimore Sun that your passion for advocacy is extremely personal and deeply rooted in your own encounter with the criminal justice system when you were in college. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that experience and how it's guided your career? Sure. So, you know, normally when you hear people say that, they talk about a direct experience of being, you know, incarcerated for a long period of time and when they got out, you know, the struggles that they had to face in terms of reintegrating back into society. I didn't go through any of that. Um, yes, I was, you know, uh, arrested. I was charged my freshman year of college, um, smoking marijuana for the first time. And I mean, I don't know. You don't. Who knows as a college student that you're not supposed to smoke marijuana with a bright college sweatshirt on, <laughs> like in a place that's actually pretty like accessible and like obvious for anyone to see. But you don't know. Um, but it wasn't that, you know. I was arrested for a long period of time and got out and couldn't get a job and all of this. That actually wasn't the case. That actually did not drive um, my advocacy and my passion. It wasn't until years after that, um, when I kind of forgot that I even was arrested and that had happened, where I'm working at JOTF. Um, and I'm in a meeting, and in this meeting, um, one of my former colleagues starts to highlight the employment and educational barriers that individuals with a criminal record are facing. And then it hit me like, wait a minute, people with a criminal record can't get jobs? Like, they have trouble actually getting an education? Like, they actually can't survive? And then the light bulb went out, and I just immediately remembered, oh my goodness, I have a criminal record. Like, that could have been me. It was the fear of me being in that situation that drove my passion. It wasn't actually any direct experiences of me actually being challenged in terms of trying to secure employment. It was the fear of having to check a box saying I've been arrested or convicted of a crime. It was the fear of going before someone in a background check being ran and that coming up and them looking at me differently, knowing what I know and hearing what I hear about the stigma attached to the criminal record. It was that fear of being denied a job opportunity or any opportunity because you know, of something that happened at one of the most embarrassing times of my life. And so that in and of itself, that fear is what drove me to just throw myself into anything that I had to deal with eliminating barriers for this population to properly, adequately um, reintegrate back into society and for folks to really start looking at them as if they are individuals. Fantastic. Um, and I mean, you've used your experience to bring about substantive policy change throughout your career, and you've worked with a broad cross-section of policymakers in Annapolis. Um, actually, the photo on your LinkedIn profile is uh, from the signing of the Justice Reinvestment Act. You're standing right next to Chris Shank, who's a former Republican state senator and currently the governor's chief legislative officer. Mm -hmm. So what was it about this issue, the Justice Reinvestment Act, that brought you together with the Hogan administration? You know, I'm really good about changing my pictures on social media, but I just, I cannot bring myself to change that picture um, because for exactly why you're asking me this question. Um, it is, it's, it's weird. It, it could be weird to some folks to have, you know, me, st and we're smiling. Like we are very, <laughs> very happy in that picture. Um, so how did we end up working together? So before Chris Schenck worked for Governor Hogan's administration, he was a former state senator. 
uh, and he sat on the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee. And so when he was a uh, when he was a House delegate before he was a state senator, I mean he sat on the House Judiciary Committee. He literally opposed everything that JOTF was about. I mean like a straight up and down. Like it was almost like is this JOTF? Nope, no. Um, but then he became a senator, and now he's in the upper chamber. And we're pushing for the Maryland Second Chance Act. This was a bill that would allow individuals to request shielding of certain nonviolent misdemeanor convictions after a certain period of time. Um, and there was a gentleman who was providing testimony. And this gentleman was, he was a math genius. And this gentleman had gone through a situation in his life where his fiance was in a really, really bad car accident and died. And as a result, he became depressed. Life took a downward spiral, turned to drugs, became homeless, lost his job. Like, I mean, his life just went just the complete opposite way. Um, and as a result, he interacted with the criminal justice system. He gets caught for drugs. He gets an indecent exposure charge because he doesn't have a place to live, so he's changing his clothes on a park bench. Um, and so all of these different charges, and many of them aren't even guilty convictions. They're just charges that were dropped in court. He was found not guilty. They realized he probably shouldn't have locked you up anyway because you were just homeless. Um, these charges complicated his ability to secure and maintain employment. And hearing that story, literally hearing that story, I will never forget, Chris Shank, he literally quoted scripture in the Senate committee room. And it was a scripture, I'm totally going to like mess it up, but it was some scripture and it's like, but by God I go or something. I know I just totally like butchered it. But the idea was, or the idea behind that scripture is, any one of us could be in this situation where we have interacted with, with law enforcement, we now have a criminal record, and that criminal record has shrouded us in this stigma, has just encompassed us in, in significant obstacles and barriers and complications that make it so difficult for us to even survive or think straight. And if we don't do things like eliminate many of these barriers, then we can't expect these individuals to be able to actually move past the situations that they're in. And so it was that that hearing that led um, Shank, who was already always very interested in, in the idea of redemption and correctional education and criminal justice reform, to then throw himself into how can we really ensure that as a state we are providing second chances to the people who need it most. Well, and I mean, that's exactly what you were just speaking to. Uh, it's that story of how it's actually affecting Marylanders that um, ended up bringing a lot of legislators around on that issue. Mm -hmm. um, so what exactly is it that the Justice Reinvestment Act does, and what does it mean for Marylanders who are sure. trying to put their lives back together? Sure. So the Justice Reinvestment Act, um, <laughs> so this uh, bipartisan, intergovernmental, comprehensive, um, bipartisan reform package, criminal justice package, um, where, um, I don't even know where to start. So it, it started in 2015 where you had a diverse group of folks, lawmakers, um, prosecutors, uh, correctional folk, um, JOTF was the only nonprofit appointed to the uh, Justice Reinvestment Coordinating Council. And we were appointed to this council and our job was to analyze to review and analyze 10 years of state correctional data to see who we're locking up, why we're locking them up, and for how long. And based on that information, we have to find where we can reduce the number of people who we're locking up and the money saved from incarcerating folks. Because when you incarcerate a person, it's $30,000 a year per person, okay? So the money saved from not incarcerating a person who doesn't need to be incarcerated 
could then be reinvested into community-based initiatives to keep folks out of the criminal justice system. So these are what you call recidivism reduction programmatic efforts, whether they be job training, drug treatment, um, any host of things to help individuals stay out of the system. Uh, and, and this was important because, you know, in a state like Maryland, you know, we had numbers where it said 58% of individuals who are in our state prison system are there for nonviolent offenses. That's more than half of the individuals that are sitting in our state detention facilities are not there for violent offenses. They're not there because we're scared of them. They're there because we're mad at them because, you know, they, you know, they broke some rule or something, not because they're jeopardizing public safety. 60% of individuals who are going back for parole violations or probation violations are not there because they were committing a new crime, like actually I'm out on parole and while I'm out, I'm committing a new crime. That's not what was happening. What's happening is you're out on parole and you have to go see your PO, but you can't figure out the bus system. So you're late to your, you're five minutes late. Now you're violated and you went back in. You passed a dirty drug test because, you know, you couldn't, for whatever reason, you passed a dirty drug test. These are called technical violations that was causing our jails and prisons to be stocked with individuals who actually weren't dangerous at all. So the Justice Reinvestment Act seeks to, quite simply, reduce our prison population and reinvest the cost savings from those prison reductions back into ways to keep people out of the system, into more community-based initiatives that will ensure that we're actually um, advancing a more holistic approach to how we do corrections in the state of Maryland. And so you were working with the Hogan administration on that incredibly important work, um, but lately you found yourself on the other side of the Hogan administration. Um, you championed two bills this year that were vetoed, um, and we talked at length about sick leave on an earlier episode, but we didn't get a chance to talk about about banning the box on college applications, which you actually alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so what is the story there on those bills? So the one unique thing about JOTF is, you know, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we could totally be on the same page as, you know, a Republican administration. And then Tuesday, Thursday, and twice on Sunday, we're on the complete opposite side. And that's because we focus on the issue. Our focus are low-wage workers and helping them advance to high-wage jobs. And so um, that's where our that's where our passion lies. Um, that's where our values and our vision and our mission lies. And so, on one hand, um, and this is this is what you would call the heart of hypocrisy. Um, so, on one hand, you have an administration who is passionate about providing opportunities for formerly incarcerated individuals to go forth and be great. Now that you know you have you know, done whatever criminal activity you've done, you've gone through whatever rehabilitative or redemptive steps that you've gone, and now we go forth and be great. Going forth and being great means getting an education, getting a job. Um, and if we know that education is strongly correlated to income, meaning you are not going to be able to get a job or secure a higher job if you don't have some type of formal education that's attached to it, um, then education becomes that more important in terms of employment opportunities. And so you have a governor who claims that Maryland is open for business, who claims that, you know, is vetoing bills um, uh, and his reasoning being that it's a job killer, um, wanting to ensure that as many Marylanders as possible have access to good jobs. Uh, we have a governor who, you know, his keynote address at the MACO summer conference was, um, no child should ever, um, you know, should ever uh, have to, um, it's a, of course, I can't even remember the quote now, but it was something about how no child should ever um, uh, should ever be subject to um, 
to horrible educational opportunities because of where they live or where they come from, right? And so this idea of fairness and justice and how it doesn't matter what happened to you back then, it shouldn't determine your trajectory of life, right? That's on one hand. And then on the other hand, it's like, what in the world, Governor? Did you for literally forget what you just said? Because how could you say all of that and then say, psych, just kidding, those individuals who want a college education who are formerly incarcerated, mm -mm, not y'all. We don't think that you guys should get a college education. Why? Because we think that you guys are going to go on college campuses and rape and murder and just harm everyone. Governor Hogan, literally, what are you talking about? Like, the reasoning behind his veto is totally out of line with what the actual final bill that passed the General Assembly says, which, by the way, had strong bipartisan support, both sides of the aisle, because both Republicans and Democrats, young and old, black and white, realize in no way, shape, or form should your criminal background determine whether or not you should have access to an education, not in this country. And so with bipartisan support, the governor still still vetoed this effort. And so it's it's... It's quite honestly, it's it's hypocritical. It's shocking the fact that we, you can stand there and support efforts to provide correctional education or college courses to actual inmates, those individuals who are currently incarcerated. But once these individuals are now formally incarcerated and released from correctional control because the state of Maryland has determined that they no longer are a danger, we are saying, nope, nope. You cannot step foot on college campuses to get a college education, even though our college campuses are already open and people are already stepping foot on college campuses, whether they have to check a box or not. So this idea that, oh, I had to veto the Maryland Fair Access to Education Act because it was going to ensure that my college campuses were safe. What are you talking about? That box is not ensuring that your college campuses are safe because you have folks that are checking no on the box and that they don't have a criminal record and they are raping and assaulting people left and right. Exhibit A, the Stanford rapist. He did not, he did not have a prior criminal record. And yet he's the Stanford rapist. That box didn't protect you or prevent him from raping an unconscious student. So why in the world would you think that that box is gonna prevent someone from going on campus and doing what they can already do. Moreover, why would you want to prevent an opportunity for an individual who takes the necessary courses, raises the money, everything you have to do to apply to college and get in college, it ain't easy. It's not like you just wake up and like, I'm gonna go to college. Let me figure this out. I'm gonna just go and figure it out. Oh, but no, it does not work. There are some steps that you have to take and only a disciplined individual who has identified a college education as the way to move forward. That's the person you want on your college campuses. So this whole open for business, I care about education and income and all of that totally went out the door when he vetoed the Maryland Fair Access to Education. I don't care what anybody says or what he says. It doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, obviously on this issue and then on paid sick leave, you have two big veto fights coming mm -hmm. up in January. Mm -hmm. um, but where else will JOTF be advocating for reform during the legislative oh, session? Oh, geez. Literally, JOTF is like everywhere. Anywhere there's an opportunity to eliminate educational or employment barriers for low-wage workers or working families, we're going to be there. Um, but in terms of what our particular agenda may be, in addition to the veto overrides, um, JOTF is going to be the lead on a major expungement bill. It's time to now overhaul our expungement law. Our expungement laws are all over the place. Judges, attorneys, even the petitioners don't understand what the laws are. So we need to streamline and update and overhaul them. Um, child support issues. You have a number of individuals um, who are being labeled as deadbeat dads or deadbeat moms when they're really just dead broke. They want to be able to provide for their families, but they can't get a job because they have a criminal record or whatever reason that does not allow them to pay. And because our child support policies, enforcement policies are punitive and counterproductive, it ends up having um, folks with garnished wages, driver's license being suspended, or worse, 
incarceration. And so looking at how can we ensure that if the point of child support is that you're actually paying monies to support the families, that we're actually doing that and we're not, you know, deepening the barriers and obstacles that folks, um, that moms and dads have to go through in order to actually pay it. Um, you'll also see some work around unemployment insurance, ensuring that those who need it most will have access to it. Um, and of course, you'll see some work around um, minimum wage increase. Um, and also probably some um, some work around a paid leave. Um, so you know, there's there's a lot that's going to be happening in this upcoming session. Like I said, it's an election year. So in addition to us fighting on behalf of low wage workers, that fight for low wage workers includes probably opposing some really bad proposals that's going to come out from some well-meaning legislators who we're going to have to get in there and just remind them that that literally does not help working families at all. Right. And uh, your background is in advocacy and coalition building, as you just talked extensively about. Uh, but you recently moved into a new role with JOTF, uh, that is of executive director. Yes. So advocacy is an important important role of the organization's work, but it's only one piece of the puzzle. Yes. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what JOTF stands for mm -hmm. and what it does? Right. So JOTF stands for the Job Opportunities Task Force. Um, and while we are an advocacy organization, we utilize three strategies in order to execute our mission of eliminating educational and employment barriers for low-wage workers. So one piece is our program development. We have a very successful um, construction training program, Project Jumpstart. It's a 14-week program, twice a week, 87 hours, um, in carpentry, electrical, and plumbing. Um, and the idea is to, we partner with associated builders and contractors, and the idea is to train individuals in, the, in industry trades um, and then to place them in industry employment with wages starting um, of at least $12.50. $12 and what's so important about this program is that Project Jumpstart, it's literally a jumpstart for many of the city residents who need a second, third, or fourth chance. Um, over 70% of individuals are under or unemployed when they come into the program. Over 80% lack um, you know, a driver's license or are dealing with significant child support arrears or issues that's complicating their ability to secure employment. Um, and uh, close to 90% have a serious criminal record. And so these are individuals that are dealing with severe employment barriers. And so in addition to training them um, in hard skill training that, you know, that skill training, we're also working very hard in terms of wraparound services and doing things like cleaning up that record, you know, paying for them to go to driver's education and linking them up with a car, um, dealing with any child support issues or MBA fines, just ensuring that they are as attractive as possible to the employer. Um, and then we have a research and public, public education arm where the direct experiences of our Jumpstart participants and graduates where they're like, I can, I'm being trained, but there are policies that are just smacking me in my face where, you know, I try to go here and there's a policy or a law that says I can't go any further. And so we will then take that information to our public education and research team to do a little bit more digging and figure out what are the stats around this? How big of a problem is this? What, what's been done in Maryland and what opportunities or challenge presents itself in terms of how, mitigating the situation? And then if there is a recommendation, whether it be administrative or legislative, that then moves to our policy team where we either go to Annapolis or we're going to our local governments and we're trying to advance a particular policy to address that situation. So JOTF does a lot, like a big piece policy reform, but many of the other pieces that feed into our policy reform efforts are those tangible direct experiences, data collection to show that these issues are real, they're important, and we need to be deliberate and thoughtful about actually addressing them. Absolutely, and you just named a ton of issues, um, and these issues are very much at the center of the public conversation about where Baltimore is mm -hmm. and where it's going. So how can smarter policies around employment and our youth help move the city forward? 
Hmm. Well, you know, <clears throat> in Baltimore City, uh, we have 65% of city adults who are unemployed. Uh, we have 20% of our city residents who lack a high school diploma. And more than half of our city residents um, don't have any formal education past high school. Um, that's a third of our city residents. That's, you know, close to 200,000 city residents. When you have those dynamics in place, um, when you have that uh, context, um, it becomes very difficult for uh, those individuals to be able to access any type of economic opportunity if we are not, um, if we're not vigilant and deliberate about connecting them and, and identifying career pathways for these individuals. And so what that means is we need to invest in not just our K through 12, um, educational system, but we also need to vastly increase our investment in adult education. These are individuals who are outside of the K through 12 education system, but they don't have more than an eighth grade education. But in order for them to be able to actually get a, a good job, they have to get that high school diploma, or they have to be able to obtain some type of occupational credentialing so that they can get and keep a good job. We have to have to invest in adult education, whether that's the state's employment advancement right now, the EARN program, whether that's you know the new federal wheel of um, regulations that have come down, um, and that you know are requiring states and localities to come up with local plans on how to ensure that they're connecting folks, um, its residents to jobs. Investment in adult ed education is so key. Uh, for Baltimore City, um, another key thing to ensure that we're connecting our adults and youth to employment is. You know, last year we just had a, uh, a United States Department of Justice investigation into the Baltimore Police Department that showed that you had a number of city residents that were having abnormal, unusual, inappropriate interactions with law enforcement. Um, and these interactions produce what we know as a, a, a criminal record. Um, and this investigation found that many of these interactions were illegal, they were unfounded, um, and they were unnecessary. But unfortunately, you have individuals in the city who are struggling with the criminal record and cannot move past that criminal record when they should not have it in the first place. And so in order to move these folks past that uh, situation, while you have the consent decree and everything else going on, there are a number of things that we can do in terms of job training for this population, ensuring that we're providing as many wraparound services, in addition to policy reform around banning the box on job and college applications and expungement reform so that this dated minor information charges where you weren't found guilty. Um, that needs to be removed from your record because the only thing that should be popping up are relevant um, uh, charges that are um, um, that are in relation to the job by which you're in, um, employed or when you're seeking employment. So, um, you know, of course, recreational opportunities and other community-based opportunities for both youth and adults to be able to, you know, invest in and um, invest in their communities and, and have an outlet. Um, but, you know, investing in adult education and removing barriers uh, for um, workers with a criminal record, that's huge for this city. Absolutely. Well, Karen, again, thank you. It was you. great having you back on the podcast, and yeah. I'm looking forward to watching your work, uh, both when the General Assembly reconvenes in January and as Baltimore confronts structural inequity. So please know that you're welcome back here anytime. And awesome. again, thank you. Thank you. You can join us again in two weeks for another episode of our Maryland's Politics and Policy podcast. But in the meantime, you can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and on our website at OurMaryland.us. Yeah.